Um, as a church, last week we started preaching through the Gospel of John, and um, the Gospel of John is a little bit of an intimidating book to um, to preach through. I told this story last week, but there is a um, uh, one of the professors at the seminary where I'm taking uh, doing my degree is uh, uh, he had he had done some ministry with the persecuted church in Latvia, uh, the church that had kind of come out of the, uh, that was left over after the uh, Iron Curtain fell down, and um, and he had been ministering to these people who had suffered under the persecutions that the Soviets had inflicted on on the people there in the Evangelical Lutheran Church there, and um, he got a contract to write the commentary on the Gospel of John, and uh, the he was very excited, and he was telling the, the people there, and there's this woman older woman who had lived through all the sufferings of of the long century in Latvia and who had seen everything and the uh the the darkness of that place try to squelch out every semblance of the word and she went up to him and she said what makes you think you're holy enough to preach on the gospel of John, or to write a commentary on the gospel of John so um as we turn to it it's uh, with a little bit of trepidation um last week we saw that the word, the Gospel of John, is a, uh, a biography uh, about Jesus. It's the Gospel according to John. It's not John's Gospel. There's one Gospel, one truth, one Lord, one name under heaven by which man may be saved. One Jesus. And yet God, in His kindness and His generosity to us, His graciousness, has seen fit to give us four biographies, four stories of His life. And I think God knows that. Sometimes maybe we have a ADD, and so we uh, we, uh, we we sometimes our, our mind kind of gets bored, and so God says, "Let me give you four pictures, four pictures of who Jesus is." And um, and the Gospel of John is the the final picture. The Gospel of John is, uh, as John Calvin said, the the first three Gospels give us the body of Jesus, but the Gospel of John gives us the soul. And the Gospel of John is. Um, uh, a profound book. It's a book in which a, a toddler can splash, but an elephant can swim. And so uh, we'll be attending to the Gospel of John with all that we can um, for the for the foreseeable future. And so, if you don't mind turning with me to gospel to the Gospel according to John, uh, chapter one, verses six through thirteen. So what God's word says it says there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Father, one more time, as we open up your word, we pray that you would show us the riches that you've given to us in it. Pray that you would help us to see, and to know, and to believe in your Son, and to receive him, and bear witness to him in all of our lives. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. The passage that we preached through last week ended with this sentence, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Uh, One of the the truisms, one of the starting places, which I think we can all agree on and which um, even maybe friends of ours who aren't 
Christians would agree on is that this world is filled with darkness and that suffering is a universal truth and that all of us in our own way, whether it's looking at our own sin or seeing the ways that people have sinned against us or watching the ways that humans sin against one another, can recognize and realize that this world is filled with darkness. And every religion, every philosophy, every belief system is trying to find a way to penetrate that darkness. It's trying to find a way to see the light, to to make sense of all of the brokenness of this world. So if you are a Muslim, the, the way to penetrate that darkness is through submission and obedience. If you are Buddhist, the way to get the light to have enlightenment is by detachment. Maybe you're here and you say, well, I'm an atheist, so I don't really believe any of that. And I would just say, you know the period of history that atheism comes out of in the modern era is called the what? The enlightenment. Uh, And that atheism is just as much as any other belief system, just as much as any other philosophy, trying to find the light. It's trying to make sense of this world. It's trying to make sense of the brokenness in this place. And they would say that you do that by letting go of the shackles of religion. Every religion is trying to find the light. And Christianity, like those other philosophies, like those other religions, is trying to find the light. And each of those different religions will tell you that when you do find the light, that there is a benefit for you. And so, if you're again, if you're Muslim, the, the, the benefit of finding the light, of submitting to Allah, of submitting to the Quran is paradise. And if you're Buddhist, the, the benefit of, of detachment from everything else is to achieve enlightenment. And if you are atheist, the benefit to finding the light is, of course, to, to live a more rational life, a life that makes sense. And as we'll see this morning, that for Christianity, we're looking for the light. What we believe is the true light, and that this light gives us uh, the best things, the, the best benefits, that there's nothing else that can compare with what finding the true light, the light that shines in the darkness, gives us. And so this morning, um, our, our out, I know I always, I'm terrible to take notes off of, and I would apologize, but I'm not really that sorry. But the, so let me give the outline ahead of time. The, 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 the first thing that we're going to talk about is, uh, who are those who do not get the light? The second is, who are those who do get the light? The third is, what benefit is there for those? I I think that's how I phrased it. What what, uh, benefit is there? What God gives to those who have the light? And the fourth is, how should we respond if we've received the light? So the, the first is, who doesn't get the light? Second is, who does get the light? Third is, what God gives to those who have the light? And the fourth is, what how should we respond to bearing witness? Uh, to, how should we respond to having the light? So who doesn't get the light? Who are those, according to uh, this passage, who don't get the light, who don't get that enlightenment, who don't get to see the light? Well, John gives us two categories. It says in verse 9, the true light, as opposed to the other lights, the other rival lights that are flickering, but which aren't true lights, they, those are the the little fake sun lamps that you have on your desk in the winter, but it's, it, it's not the sun. I have one myself. It's not the same. The true light, which gives light to everyone, which shines in the darkness, the true light, which is shining, was coming into the world. And so this 
this word who we talked about last week, who was in the beginning with God and who himself is God, um, and that all things were made through him, this word uh, was coming into the world, that as we'll see next week, that the word actually became flesh. So he becomes incarnate. So not only is he shining up there, but he's entered into the world to shine his light in the world. And, and verse 10 tells us that he was in the world. So he, the, he was among the world. It wasn't like he was shining in the darkness. He was actually among the world, shining the light. And the world was made through him. That The whole world came about from the light. And yet it says the world did not know him. It was fitting for the one who made the universe to be recognized by the universe. It was fitting for the one who shines the light in the darkness in the world, for the world to recognize that light and to see that light, and yet it doesn't. It doesn't. It was fitting for what Colossians says, for the one who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It was fitting that the world who came about through him would recognize him, would see him, would receive him, would know him for who he is, and yet the world does not know him. And so he comes to his own. And in verse 11, that that phrase, his own, is universally agreed to be referring to the Jewish people. So he came to those who he was, he came from the Jewish people, so he came to his own. And it would be fitting, once again, for his own people, the people from whom he descended, the the people that he came from, who had ethnic bonds to him, to have loyalty to him, to take him in, and yet his own did not receive him. And the question is, why don't these people see the light? Why, why don't they get the light? Why don't they receive the light? Well, the Gospel of John indicates for us that it's because they're blind. It's not a problem with the light. It's that they're blind. They can't see the light. Uh, we talked last week about John 9. And John 9, I, I've read through the Gospel of John a number of times to prepare for this. I think John 9 is my favorite chapter in the Bible or in the Gospel right now. Who knows once we get to John 10. But in John 9, uh, you have this miracle. And I I love it because it's kind of weird because there's this blind man and Jesus spits in the dirt. And again, my mom told me I'm not supposed to do that. And he rubs it on the guy's eyeballs. And again, my mom told me I'm not supposed to do that. And he tells the guy to go wash in the pool. And the guy washes in the pool of Siloam and he can see. And the Pharisees, he's done this on the Sabbath and the Pharisees are upset. And so the Pharisees know who did it. It's not like it's a secret, but they want to have a witness against Jesus. And so they, they haul in this blind man and they start questioning him. And I, I love the sanctified snarkiness of this blind man because he says, why do you want to know? Do you too want to become his followers? I love it. Again, my mom tells me I'm not supposed to do that. But, and the and the Pharisees are furious. They cast him out, and Jesus appears to him. And the, the man asks him, tell him, tell me who he is that I might believe in him. And Jesus says, I who am standing before you am he. Well, the, well, the reason that the Pharisees can't see it, the, the miracle is indicating for us, is because they're blind. And here's the, the irony in it, is because the, the man who was blind could see but those who could see were blind. And the Pharisees, his own people, the world can't see him because they're blind. 
You'll remember in, in the Gospel of John, the trial of Jesus has this epic statement from Pontius Pilate. What is the truth? Well, the true light was standing right in front of him. The one who was the way, the truth, and the life was right in front of him, face to face with him, and he couldn't see him because he was blind. So those who do not receive the light are those who are blind. By contrast, those who do get the light are those who believe, who have faith. This is very clear in verse 12. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed, and the ESV says believed. Here is, uh, the NASV is actually a better translation. It's a present tense who believe in his name. But to all who believe in his name. So what is, and that's the same word for belief that Paul uses for faith. So Paul and John are on the same page about this. They're united that you can only be saved by faith alone and Christ alone. So what does John mean by belief? And I think we can see a number of things in this passage. First off, uh, John believes that to see is to believe. That John often uses the phrase seeing to describe true faith. And so faith is to have the blinders removed, to take the scale off, to put the defrost on so the the windshield clears up and you can see what is right in front of you, that, that's faith in John's mind. We can also see that John says the world did not know him. So in that sense, to know Jesus is, is to, would have been to believe in Jesus. And, and we talked about that here, that to know Jesus is different than knowing about Jesus. Let me give you a contrast. So I, you can go on my Facebook page and you can find out facts about me, although not very many because I try to keep private. But you can find out something about me. And yet, just because you know those facts doesn't mean that you know me, right? So, so to know Jesus is different than knowing about Jesus. Arguably, you can't really know Jesus unless you know some things about him. But just knowing him alone is insufficient. You have to know him. We've used the phrase here, you have to know him in your bones. You have to experience him. You have to be, as we'll talk about later, you have to be born again. You have to know him. Verse 11 says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. This word for receive here means to seize or to grasp. It's a great word to describe what faith is. To take hold of Jesus. To grab hold of him for dear life. As if he was the only thing that is keeping you from plummeting to the bottom of a cliff. That's what it means to have faith in Christ. It's to grab hold of him, to seize him. That's what it means to believe. For the Gospel of John, and especially for here, this belief cannot be attributed to something that we, in our parlance, would call free will. This part of Scripture is as clear as you can be. It says so clearly in verse 13, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man. You can't will faith into existence. A faith itself, in the words of Paul, is a gift of God. Faith itself is a gift of God. Paul says it this way, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, that might sound extremely offensive, right? 
Paul's saying, yeah, even your faith, it's a gift from above. Even your, your faith is the work of God in your heart. But I promise you, John is after your joy. And here's why. Because the purpose of the gospel of John, John tells us the end of the gospel, why he wrote it. He said, these things are written so that you may believe present tense. So that you may continue to believe. So that not just that you could start believing, but that you could continue believing. So that you could endure and persevere in your faith in Christ. And as we've seen already uh, in verse 12, when it says, To all who did receive him, who believe, present tense in his name. And so John has an understanding of faith that true faith lasts. And let me tell you, I, I love you. I, I, I know you. I think the world of all of you, you do not have it in you to maintain that faith until the end. I don't have it in me to maintain that faith until the end. I don't have the faith that I need to to hold on to Christ while the world is trying to consume me, while the waves are washing away everything underneath my feet. I don't have it in me. And this is said that true faith is the faith that lasts. And I, I don't have that faith that will last through the darkest storm. I don't have that faith in and of myself that I can muster up to hold on to Christ. But thank God because that faith isn't from me in the first place. The faith that we need to hold on to Christ in the, in the waves, in the storm, in the wind, with everything else collapsing around, around us doesn't come from us. It comes from above. We were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The faith that holds on to the end is the stuff of eternity. It's faith that comes from a renewed heart and a regenerate heart that God puts there, not me, so that God can keep his promise when he said that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Thank God that this faith that we need to hold on till the end comes from Christ. And finally, what we see about this faith is is that we're not saved by the expression of our faith. We're not saved by the subjective experience of our faith. We're saved by who our faith is put in. This is important. It says, who believed in his name. Now, in the Old Testament, when you refer to the trusting in the name of somebody, that is usually a way to say trusting in the Lord. Let me give you a couple examples. So Psalm 124, 8, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Or Isaiah 50, verse 10, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in the darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. And so when John tells us in John 1, that to believe in his name is to receive him, to get the light, to see the light, to take hold of the light. It's not just believing that he existed. It's believing something particular about him, that he is God. It's giving him the same faith that you would give to God. 
That's what it means to believe in his name. If Paul, John is here. He, he's subtly reminding us that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And so to believe in the word is to believe in the name of the word as if he himself is God, which he is. Let me, let me, let me boil this down. Many of you, and this is true of my story, when you became a Christian, you, you prayed the sinner's prayer. I, that's, how I, that's where I trace my conversion to. Maybe you walked down an aisle. Maybe you were at camp and you raised your hand. Maybe you're at VBS and you filled out a card. And I, praise God for that. I don't have a problem with any of that. But what saves you is not that act. What saves you is not the expression of your faith. What saves you is the object of your faith. Who believe in His name. Who believe in Him. To, to have Faith, to have saving faith, is to have faith that is in Christ. Because there's no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. So maybe you ask, well, well what good is it to believe in Christ? What, what benefit comes from receiving the light? What, what does God give to the one who believes? I, I think we see, this is such a dense passage. I think we see a whole bunch of things. Let me give you five or six. Five or six benefits for those who receive Christ. Number number one, they get the right to become children of God. They get the right to become children of God. Now, I want to ask you a question because maybe you're familiar with the Gospel of John and maybe we just read through that really fast. What does that mean? What does it mean to have the right to become a child of God? Well, at the very least, what he's saying is that you get the privilege to enjoy the blessings of God. But that is not at all, on the face of it, self-apparent. Because John is under no illusion. In fact, the Gospel of John tells us later on that Jesus needed no one to bear witness to himself about what, man, what was in man, because he knew what was in man. That there's darkness residing in the heart of man. And if you are honest, you know that. We've even said that together in our responsive reading. That there is darkness in our heart. And, and so how does Jesus give us the right to become children of God when that is not ours rightfully? Well, it can only be true if what John the Baptist said later on is true. When John the Baptist said, um, when John the Baptist said, there goes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That you can only have the right to become the child of God. You can only enjoy the right to, to the blessings of God if your sin is taken away. If your sin is put upon the Lamb. Only like the, the children of Israel can you enjoy the, the blessings of leaving Egypt and entering into the Passover if the blood of the Lamb is put over your doorpost. This is John's way of referring to Siri, shut your mouth. This is John's way of referring to what we would call justification. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To receive the the blessings of the covenant requires that we be justified according to the covenant. 
And that can only happen if somebody took the curse of the covenant upon himself. So that's the first benefit that we receive. We might call it justification, or in John's phrasing, the right to become the children of God. Uh, We could also say what we might call adoption, that they become God's children. And you can see that very clearly here. It says he gave the right to become a child of God, children of God. You, You can see that, and Paul calls that adoption in the book of Ephesians, for example. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as, as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And so what God gives to the person who receives Christ, who takes Christ in, who grabs hold of Christ, is the right to become a child of God, a brother or sister of Christ, to be able to call the Father of Jesus our Father. That's the second benefit. The third is they get the person who believes in Jesus gets to be born again gets to be born again. Two different times in this passage, this is referenced. So it says, to become children of God. And then again, it says, who are born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is so important for the gospel of John. It says this in John 3, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the Spirit is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So to be saved in John's mind means to be born again. It means that they're regenerate, that they are that they are brought again to life. John will later say it this way. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And again, we we need to emphasize it because John emphasizes that to be born again is to be affected by God to have new birth. That to be born again means that God is the one who causes dead things to live, who, who makes, as we saw in that passage in Ezekiel earlier, who makes the bones to come together, and there's the clacking and the flesh that wraps its way around the valley of dry bones, and a great army stands. That only happens because the God of life breathes on them. And John is in lockstep with the rest of the New Testament about this. John is in lockstep says this in James 1.18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And 1 Peter 1.3 says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And Paul himself says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
this is all, of course, to fulfill the prophecy that was spoken in the Old Testament when Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. For the one who believes... The one who receives Christ, who grabs hold of him, who has faith in him, who knows him, who, who trusts in him, they get to be born again. They get to be born into eternal life. As the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that though they waste away outwardly, inwardly they're being renewed day by day. If you're here this morning and you have never been born again, you've never put your faith in Christ, I want to invite you to do that. I want to invite you to do that. You can do that in your chair where you're sitting right now. You can feel free to cry out to Christ and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Or if you want to talk about that more, you can talk to any of the members here at Grace. Part of what it means to be a member is that we know and love the gospel, and we covenant with one another to share the gospel, and so we would love to share the gospel with you. If you will, uh, if the Lord puts that on your heart, that you need to be born again. But when John talks about being born again, so closely connected in his mind are the fruits that come from being born again. In other words, if you're born again, if you put your faith in Christ, if you've received Christ, then you will no longer walk as you used to walk. John goes on to tell Nicodemus this in John 3. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may clearly be seen that his works have been carried out in God. If you have received the light, you cannot continue to walk in darkness. Or as John later says in his letter, no one born of God, same phrases here in 1 John 3, 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. And, and the, later on in the Gospel of John, we'll, when we get there in, I don't know, six years, when we get to John 15, uh, there will be this imagery that John will unwrap of, of the vine and the branches. And in the vine and the branches, in that discourse, we'll, we'll see that if you abide in Christ, if you are grafted into Christ, if you believe in Christ, you've received him, you have his eternal life dwelling in you. If you're his and he is yours, then you will produce fruit. How can you abide in the one who is love and not love? How can you abide in the one who's light and keep walking in darkness? You can't. 
And so the Christian life, one of the benefits, one of the blessings of the Christian, uh, of receiving Christ in this passage, I think, is that you don't remain unchanged. That you continue to grow in holiness. Not that you ever get perfect this side of heaven, but more and more as you get closer to eternity, the glow of eternity shows more and more in you. And so you don't keep saying things that you used to say. You don't keep treating your coworkers the way that you used to treat them. You don't keep treating your wife or your kids or your parents the way that you used to treat them, but that you grow in that. That's what it means to receive Christ. You can't receive Christ, the one who is life, and keep walking in the ways of darkness. So for those who receive Christ, who believe in Christ, they get justification, they get adoption, they get regeneration or the new birth, They get sanctification, the new life, that they continue to walk in the light. But I would also tell you this. The most important thing that they get, the thing that they get that gives them all of those other things, is Christ himself. The most important thing God gives to the one who believes in his name is himself. If you get justification and God's not on the other side of it, justification is not a blessing. And that's true of adoption and sanctification and glorification. Any of the benefits of salvation are are meant to bring us deeper into communion with Christ, that Christ is the point, or in the words of John Piper, God is the gospel. And John, in his gospel, again and again points us to this fact that the best benefit we get from salvation, the the thing that makes it all make sense, the true thing that makes everything else make, that gives light to everything else, is the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, John will say in John 6, 48 through 51, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, which he means himself, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. John says in uh, John eleven twenty five, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And John uh, 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this is something that the disciples recognized. I love the words of Peter. In my, in, in my office over there next door, um, there's a little black Bible on one of my stands in there. And it's actually my grandfather's Bible. And my grandfather didn't write down a lot in his Bible. He didn't scribble or or your circle a lot. But there is one thing that he did very prominently underline in his Bible. It's these words from John six sixty eight, And Peter said to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's what faith gets. Justification is great. I'm a, I'm a big believer in justification. Adoption is great. I'm a big believer in adoption. Regeneration is really important. Sanctification is super important. But the best benefit that God gives to the one who has faith is himself. It's communion with Christ. It's being grafted into the vine itself. The best benefit God gives 
to the one who has faith, the one who receives the light, the one who grabs hold of it for dear life is himself. So how do we respond if we've received the light? This is a great message. How, how, does, how do we respond? How, how does this change us? What, 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 what is the appropriate response from this? Well, I'm glad you asked. That is in verses 6 through 8. Uh, it says in verse 6, says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. All right? So that word, who is, whose name was John, that is referring to John the Baptist, or if you don't like that, John the Baptizer. Uh, that's referring to John the Baptist, okay? So there's a man sent from God whose name was John, a.k.a. John the Baptist. Now, that John is different than the John that wrote the Gospel of John, Okay? Now, here's where it gets really confusing. John was a disciple of John. So John, the one who wrote the Gospel of John, was actually, we see this very clearly later on in the chapter, was actually a disciple of John the Baptist. Now, here's what John knows about John. He knows what he's talking about. He's he's been a witness. He knew John the Baptist personally. And he says, I knew him. Right? So you might hear rumors. You might hear, but I was there. And here's what John the Baptist knows. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. I think one of the, one of the things that we see about John the Baptist that we don't see to the same clarity in the other three Gospels is the character of John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist was a very humble person. In the Gospel of John, again, not the works of John the Baptist, but in reference to the works of John the Baptist, uh, chapter 3, verse 30, you get these words of John the Baptist. He must increase, but I must decrease. That John, when he saw the light, when he saw the life, when he saw the Word made flesh, when he saw the one who will take away the sins of the world, when he saw the one that he'd been praying about and thinking about, I think it humbled him. And he gave his entire life for the purpose of making much of the light, not much of himself. Of increasing the light, of telling others about the light, not telling others about himself. Of of bearing witness to the light, not bearing witness to himself. Uh, John was a man on mission, a man who had purpose, that purpose wasn't to get a giant 401k, wasn't to get a giant house, it wasn't to get a giant bank account or a, a huge car. It wasn't to publish a best-selling book. John the Baptist's mission was to bear witness about the light so that all would believe. John had one sermon. There's the light and one goal in mind that all would believe. So I believe part of the reason that John, the author of the Gospel of John, wrote about John the Baptist was to give us an example of what it means to live faithfully in relation to Jesus. That To give us an example that we could imitate, that we could look at John and say, yeah, I want to be like that. I want to decrease and I want Jesus to increase. John, I believe... Is, is given to us as an example, someone who got it. 
you ever just t- saying something and there's just someone who's sitting and listening to it and they get it? John got Jesus. And he lived the rest of his life to make much of him. So if we could apply this passage well, let's just start here. If you are looking for the light, he is right in front of you. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Stop looking for not another light. Stop looking for another way. Stop looking for another life. Eternal life can be found in him. And that means if salvation is found in him alone, it is all of grace, which is very humbling because I like it to be all of me, but it's not. It's of God. Salvation is of grace. So if you're looking for the light, embrace him, the true light, the true life, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If you embrace this light, though, know this. You cannot continue to walk in the darkness. If, if you want this light, then, then your life needs to change. If you want him, if you want the new birth, if you want to continue to walk with Christ, it means that you need to grow in your Christian life. It's not that growing in your Christian life earns you salvation. Don't hear me say that. It's that once you know him, once you see the light, you can never keep walking as if you're blind again. But more and more, as you see him and behold him and understand him and you, you comprehend all that he's done for you, it should change you and me. We should not leave here unaltered. I believe particularly what John highlights here is the need for humility. The need for humility. If you are, if you are going to embrace the light, if you're going to live your life on purpose about the light, to make much of the light, that means that you must embrace humility. And those of you who know me even a little bit know that's a struggle for me. It's conflicting for me. Because pride is at the root of so much sin, right? Just think about the last time you got in a fight with your spouse, how much of that was rooted in pride. If you're a man, race, you know, I'm just kidding. That, that oftentimes it's so easy to subvert God's priorities for our life, for our marriage, for our kids, for our workplace, with our priorities. And, and what, G, what John... the the Baptist and John the Gospel writer are telling us today is that once you see the light, you can't really be on mission for yourself anymore. You should be humbled by this. You should be humbled that he would save you and give you new life, that he would shine the light on you so that you could see him and glorify him. We shouldn't leave here unchanged. We should leave here humbled. We should leave here, if, if, we're, if we're going to learn from the example of John, how to respond to the light. We should live our lives so that we bear witness as much as we can and as faithfully as we can and everywhere that we can to the light. In our marriages and with our kids and in our workplaces and in our thought life, that everything we do should be about saying, He is the light. Which is going to mean that we will have a mentality of that we'll have a mentality of he must increase and I must decrease. And the more that you lose yourself in that, the more that you make much of Christ, the more content that you feel. It's actually the more that you force your own priorities, 
and you know this, the more that you force your own priorities in your life, the, the less content you feel, the more discontent, the more frustrated that you feel because you know your life is not about you. But the more that you make bearing witness to the life, your goal, your purpose, your mission, the more that you make that what you're about, the more content you'll feel with your life. And I believe the more that you will enjoy the life that God has given you. And so, Christians, let us humble ourselves and and let us learn from the example of John the Baptist to bear witness to the light in everything that we do. And if I can end with this word of encouragement, the light did not shine on people, the light did not shine on people that had their act all together. It did not shine on people who were perfect. The light did not shine on those who understood everything all at first. And so if you are here today and you see, man, there is so much darkness inside of me. I can't even begin to unravel it all. I can't even begin to know where should I start bearing witness to the light. Well, you just take one step at a time and you trust that God's grace is sufficient for me. You trust that God's grace is enough for each day, for each step that we take. And I pray that we all learn the words of that hymn that we will sing in just a minute. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus and to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise and to know thus saith the Lord. Oh, how sweet to trust in Jesus, just to trust his cleansing blood and in simple faith to plunge me neath the healing, cleansing flood. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Yes, tis sweet to trust in Jesus, just from sin and self to cease, just from Jesus simply taking life and rest and joy and peace. I'm so glad I learned to trust you. Precious Jesus, Savior, friend, and I know that you are with me, will be with me to the end. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we trust your word is enough for us. Father, we trust that your light is enough for us today. Father, if there's anyone here who hasn't put their faith in you, who hasn't received you, who hasn't grabbed hold of you, Father, would you shine your, the light of the glory of Christ in their heart today? Would you open up their heart that they might see you and love you and behold you and take hold of you and part, be part of our sweet fellowship in you? Father, would you help us to know what it means that it is sweet to trust in Jesus? Father, how often in life that is not our mentality. We look at it as a joy, but sometimes also as a toil. And Father, the more and more as we come with John the Baptist to say, he must increase and I must decrease, more and more would you help us to know and to savor the sweetness of trusting in him. 
So, Father, we pray that you would use this word to form us and to shape us, to mold us and to make us more and more into his image, that we might bear witness about him in all of life. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.